Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. This episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer, we're very happy to have Thomas Carruthers join us. He's an interim president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, an independent global think tank based in Washington, D.C., where he oversees all of the endowment's research programs and directs the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance program. He's the founder and director of the Democracy and Rule of Law program, which analyzes the state of democracy in the world and the efforts by the United States and other countries to promote democracy. Dr. Carruthers is a leading authority on democracy promotion and democratization worldwide, as well as an expert on U.S. foreign policy generally. He's worked in democracy assistance projects for many public and private organizations and carried out extensive field research on democracy building efforts around the world. In addition, he has broad experience in matters dealing with development aid, human rights, rule of law, and civil society development. He's the author or editor of eight critically acclaimed books on democracy promotion, as well as many articles on prominent journals and newspapers. His most recent book is Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. That's co-edited with Andrew O'Donoghue. He previously worked as a lawyer for the U.S. State Department and the law firm of Arnold and Porter. He's been a visiting faculty member at Oxford University, Central European University, and Johns Hopkins, SAIS. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School, the London School of Economics, and Harvard College. And we're very happy to have Tom Carruthers join us today on GDP. Hi, Tom. Hey, good to be with you, Robert. Thanks very much indeed. Now, uh, Tom, we're, we're, of course, we're running this series of podcasts in association with the Parliamentary Center here in, in Ottawa. And uh, we're really interested to, to discuss in detail uh, democracy promotion, also called internationally as, as democracy assistance. And it's, some have said it's perhaps the least widely known field of international development. Can you help our listeners understand briefly why explaining what democracy promotion means and what it looks like in practice? Happy to. You know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean invading another country and occupying it. Unfortunately, because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the fact that they became missions to try to rebuild the governments of those countries with a democratic dimension, uh, unfortunately, the subject became associated with those. So when you say to people in the world, oh, you know, Canada or the United States or Ireland should engage in democracy promotion, people say, oh, no, we don't want that. No, 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 thank you. But it's it's so much more than that. And it's those were both security interventions that kind of became political missions over time. Let's take two very different cases that I think illuminate what democracy support, as I like to call it, because uh, democracy promotion has, the word promotion has taken on kind of a bad odor because of those and other experiences. So I often use the term democracy support. What does it entail? Well, let's take the case of Myanmar. Seem to be in a process of political liberalization or even democratization over the last 10 years. And boom, as a military coup earlier this year, terrible event. And since then, just, you know, horrendous uh, violence against civic activists and ordinary citizens in the country. What does democracy support mean in a context like that? Well, it means first exerting some diplomatic pressure against military officials in Myanmar to emphasize that this uh, is going to 
you know, make them pay a price internationally of this kind of behavior and political action. It means trying to maybe broker talks between them and people uh, who are more democratically minded in the country. It might mean trying to support those civic activists who are still there. It might mean working in multilateral organizations like ASEAN or others to try to register the unhappiness about what's happening in there. And so democracy support becomes a suite of diplomatic and assistance activities designed to help a country that's moving backwards stop moving backwards. Or a different case, Tunisia. Since the Arab Spring, Tunisia has, of course, been really the most hopeful case in the Arab world of democratization. And all along the way in those 10 years, the European Union and then the move of European countries, the United States and others have tried to be partners in that democratizing process. They've provided the kind of economic support that's helped Tunisia you know, meet some of the needs of its citizens, a lot of support to political parties to help them learn to connect with citizens and compete fairly, and support to the parliament to help it function effectively as a parliament, support to Tunisian civic activists uh, to advocate for you know, basic human rights principles and other things. So that's a good example of democracy support in a democratizing context. So democracy support can either be in countries that are you know, going the wrong way or countries that are going the right way. In the first case, you try to slow that down or reverse it. In the second case, you try to help them move forward. So I think that's a better way to think about it than the, the military-oriented cases that so often come to people's mind. I think that's really important uh, context to, to 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 lead off with here. Uh, you're right. There is so much uh, sort of consciousness within academic fields that that equate uh, any sort of. Uh, assistance or promotion of democracy with those events that you just mentioned. There's many governments around the world that are uh, almost incredibly hostile to even having conversations about democracy assistance and perhaps using those those security interventions as sort of the reason why it's not wanted. Uh, the the case of, of Myanmar, I find fascinating that you just brought up. Um, I, I was doing there. I was doing research there actually in uh, mid 2019, and you know, uh, being in uh, in the country, you would never assume that there was a, there was a coup coming up. I, 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 all the people I talked to, that was the farthest thing on their mind. Uh, very interesting case study there. Maybe we can get back to it later about you know what actually mm-hmm. uh, fell apart there. But at this point, several of the leading American democracy support organizations uh, that are engaging in this work, they're coming up on their 40th anniversaries, more or less, uh, since they were founded shortly before or immediately after the Cold War. So how have you seen these organizations evolve over the years? How have the approaches to democracy support or assistance changed over time? They have evolved. You know, if you take a quick look, if you were just to look at their annual report, say, from compare 1986 to, you know, 2010, you'd say, oh, you know, okay, you're working on elections, you worked on elections then, oh, you're doing work related to parliaments, you're doing work related to parties, civic work, I don't really see any change. The change is more in, mostly in, in how they do what they do. A crucial change, probably the most important change is it's a simple one. And those listeners who are part of the kind of the economic development community or socioeconomic development community will recognize this. It's going from thinking of yourself, you the provider of assistance, as the agent of change to understanding that the change comes from within that country. And the question is simply, can you facilitate those who would like to change? Can you maybe provide them some intellectual resources, financial resources that might help them do that? But you are not driving the change you are trying to facilitate and support change. 
It sounds like just maybe semantics, but it's not. Because early on, people from these organizations would sometimes arrive in countries and say, we know just what needs to happen and here's how it will happen. And that's just the same as in economic development. If you arrive and say, yeah, you need a big dam over here, as opposed to listening to what people need and trying to think about, well, how could we help them do what they need to do rather than telling them what they should do? So that's been a change. A second related to that is there's a change and there's much greater emphasis not on we here in the West or the wealthy Western democracies have the answers and we're going to hand it to you and hope that you take up the answer and implement it to instead saying, and there's a lot of learning out there. You're there in Malawi. Um, maybe people in Ghana have something that you could learn from. So why don't we facilitate some exchanges horizontally within a number of African countries? Um, and so comparative knowledge sharing and experiences within regions has become as important or more important than the, the old model of kind of the Western export business. Um, you know, so those are big changes in the how. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask, is it fair to say then that part of this evolution is that the concern is really about the process of democracy rather than the outcome of it? Yes, because what happened you see, Robert, is when, when this field started in the second half of the 80s and first half of the 90s, there was a pretty strong sense of momentum around democracy. It seemed like the world was moving in a democratic direction. And uh, you had to sort of just kind of egg it on and be there and push it forward. But then in a lot of countries, it didn't move forward very well. It either moved forward and stopped, went sideways, went backwards. And people began to think, we have to understand more about the process. We have to understand how people in these countries are really going to drive change themselves, because we can't do it, obviously. Um, so it was kind of the sobering of the field over time to realize that this isn't going to be a triumphal moment or a triumphal process of democratization. It's going to be a very tough slog. And so we have to really get serious about getting into the bloodstream of understanding how change occurs in other countries and thinking about you know, in what way can we be a useful partner to that? That's a, that's a great point. I think the other uh, issue that you raised there is, is the idea of the West or the North, Global North, saying, here's how you should do democracy. And I think in the last year or so, especially, a lot of Western democracies, in the U.S. included, have started to take a very serious self-examination of how those processes uh, unfold. If they're, you know, what are the issues about inclusivity and 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 just how the the process itself uh, is is guarded and guaranteed and supported by uh, by those institutions, and I'm wondering if this this ability to create assistance also creates the ability to listen a bit and maybe to have some of those harder conversations within the global north as well. You know, I hope so. Uh, a colleague, Francis Brown, and I published an article just a couple of months ago in the in American Purpose, a magazine called The Chastened Power. And it was about how can the United States, with all the democratic damage that we've suffered in the last whatever X years, you named the time period, um, how can we still engage in democracy support? What do we have to offer the world? And we argue in the piece that, um, yes, the United States desperately needs to get its democratic house in order. But that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to be a generation-long process of reform and change in the United States. We can't just sit back from the world and wait till that's done to re-engage. We need to re-engage in a thoughtful way that we describe as a mutual learning endeavor in which, you know, say we're struggling with the problem of polarization in the United States. It's just racking American politics in terrible ways. Well, 
Other countries have experienced that and con you know, confronted it in some productive ways. Kenya faced severe political polarization in the late 2000s and electoral violence around that, learned some important lessons. What if we approach some of these problems as, hey, we all have similar problems. Uh, we've confronted at different times in different ways. Let's learn from each other rather than we have the answers, you have the problems. Now, shifting gears to a true mutual learning endeavor approach is hard because our whole aid community is built on the kind of old fashioned idea we project outward to the world. So instead we're proposing kind of new kinds of programs that have, for example, a built-in take home learning element where people from the United States go out and work in another part of the world. But part of that program is take back some of the learning from that country back into the US policy process and US political institutions. So we're trying to get some creativity here into the field to help energize the idea that this is a you know in a sense we're all in the soup together now and so let's let's work together rather than top to you know top to bottom instead side by side right and what about other countries who are statedly interested in democracy support or assistance uh, i'm thinking the neighbors of the north canada uh, was relatively active in international democracy promotion and support until the late 2000s. And since that time, we've seen major cuts and uh, like a near withdrawal of, of this area altogether within Canada's foreign policy. So would you agree with the findings of the 2019 Parliamentary Standing Committee report uh, that urged Canada to reinvest uh, given the crisis in global democracy? And, and if so, what role could a middle power like Canada play in any form of democracy assistance considering this approach that you just mentioned? Canada should re-engage, and it does have an important role to play. You know, often Canada, you know, the, the fate of geography will compare its policies and its outlook to the United States. But it's important to go a bit higher in the helicopter, and you look around and say, huh, all established successful democracies engage in democracy support. The UK does a lot of democracy support. Sweden does. Ireland does. Spain does. Japan does. South Korea does. Why shouldn't Canada? So first of all, it isn't just... We don't want to be associated with this American project or, you know, U.S. project. Instead, say, why should Canada not be part of what seems to be a basic habit of established democracies? Why is it an, a, an established habit of most democracies? Because it's in their interest. Canada is going to be a more peaceful country, a more secure country, and a more prosperous country if it lives in a more rather than less democratic world. That's just a fact. I think Canada's recent travails of the past couple of years with China highlight that a less democratic world in which power is held more by undemocratic powers is going to be a less comfortable world for Canada. So this isn't about altruism. This is about national self-interest. Canada would like to live in a world in which its values are more consistent with the prevailing values of other countries. Now, where can Canada make a difference? Um, plenty of places in plenty of ways, I think. <clears throat> to start with, you know, I think in the, in the hemisphere and Latin America, uh, Canada has a very valuable role because it doesn't have all of the political baggage of the United States. It's played you know, a useful role in, in a whole range of cases, uh, including Haiti, Central America, parts of the Andean region, and elsewhere, both diplomatically and in assistance terms. You know, the United States is very stuck on policy towards Venezuela. Canada has the ability to do some things the United States probably has a harder time doing diplomatically. Same with Cuba. So there's regions where Canada has some special purchase, but then there are also themes. 
Canada has been doing very important things domestically in recent years with human rights, but particularly inclusiveness, in inclusion and democracy. And that has become just a critical issue in many democracies around the world. And so Canada's emphasis on rights and inclusion is something that it can share with others and learn from and bring a lot to the table. And so Canada has both regions and themes in which I think it has some you know, special traction and a place to play. All it takes is a bit of willpower actually a relatively modest amount of resources and Canada will become, you know, one of the most important players on this larger subject in the world. Uh, very interesting. And one of the things that, that you mentioned about inclusion is something that the, 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 the government in Ottawa currently is, is, is approaching and it's bringing about very difficult conversations. And on one side, it's creating those uncomfortable conversations with parts of Canadian society to have to deal with a very uh, jilted, very violent past of the settlement of the country. And then on others uh, saying, well, the, the claims are good, but they're not going far enough. There's still mm -hmm. quite a few groups who are continuing to be marginalized and that the, the system still has these inherent uh, blind spots that will create exclusions. And I'm wondering, is this really getting down to the heart of what democracy support can be about? It seems that for uh, any country to, to maintain a, a, a system that intentionally excludes voices, intentionally excludes participants, that that's ultimately going to stack the deck against a, a fair and equitable, but also inclusive democratic system. And I'm wondering, is this business about inclusion kind of the heart of what democracy supports about? It should be. Unfortunately, you know, debates in the United States, inclusion is often thrown into the fray of the left-right debate in the United States. And it's seen as, oh, this is a, a faddish cause of the left. It's not. You know, the most important trend in some ways politically of the last 10 years, Robert, has been a surge in anti-government protests by massive numbers of citizens all around the world. At Carnegie, we maintain something called the Global Protest Tracker. And if you Google that and look at the tracker, you'll see we keep track of all of the major anti-government protests that are currently going on in the world. What's their cause? Why are they happening? How long have they been going on? How large are they? And this surge in global protests reflects the fact that citizens everywhere are angry about not being included. They're either economically marginalized, they're politically marginalized, they're socially marginalized, and they, they don't want to put up with that anymore. You know, there is a surge of global desire for both representation, i.e. inclusiveness, and accountability. They want the governments to listen to them, to take account of their needs and interests, and to respond. And so inclusion isn't just a detail in the democracy agenda. It's the jugular. It's, it's the heartland. And so, you know, we really need to think hard about how can we take our experiences, which we know are fraught with political difficulties and conflict of inclusiveness in our own countries. My goodness, how could a, somebody from the United States see it otherwise, given our, our racial history and other things, and go to other countries and say, we've been struggling with this, but it's crucial. So what are you doing and how can we, how can we help or how can we learn from you? And let's work together on this. Great. That's a really great point. And that, and the democracy, uh, the, the protest tracker that you just mentioned there is, is a tool that I would recommend to, to many academics and students like to, to take a look at, uh, here at Dalhousie, a, a few years back, I was, I developed and taught a course on, on activism and development. And I 
kept a very close eye on the uh, on the on the protest tractor the tracker that you mentioned there from from Carnegie incredible incredible uh, data collection tool there so uh, if I can just ask then then Tom can could you describe a case that you would consider to be a success story then for international democracy support something that 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 gets to these values that we're that we're discussing you know there are various there's there aren't very many that are bright and shiny and you know in which uh things are going wonderfully and one can see the clear role of outsiders having been decisive but there are many many countries where support from all, a whole series of actors from the outside public organizations private organizations has made a difference let's return to the case of tunisia tunisia has been swimming in really difficult waters the arab world has just been you know, roiled in the last 10 years by what happened in Syria and Libya and Yemen, the conflicts, the pressures from Saudi Arabia, the pressures from Iran. Yet there's Tunisia hanging on. Pluralistic process, decency, respect for human rights, respect for elections. Now, Tunisians have done it, but they have done it in partnership with others. There have been foreign partners there um, providing a lot of economic support, which has helped governments stay afloat. Uh, and provide you know some of what citizens need. It has been helpful, the outside help, in with the civic activist community in Tunisia, who've been able to connect to activists in other parts of the Arab world, learn lessons from them. It has been helpful with the Tunisian parliament, with Tunisian political parties that have learned how to mobilize more effectively and connect to citizens. And so when you go to Tunisia and talk to people, you'll find that people will say, they don't want to say out loud, but quietly they will say, you know, we've appreciated the, the, the partnerships from uh, different international actors who've come and tried to help the country. Probably, you know, might have made it without all that, but it's a shaky transition there. They're facing a lot of pressures, and this kind of support is both morally useful and practically useful. And what about the the importance of feminist international assistance. Canada, for example, has a has an international assistance policy that's uh, going to be feminist in nature, the feminist foreign policy. And you've argued in some of your writing that efforts to promote women's political empowerment can help to foster greater change when the strategies are, are adapted to different contexts. So despite the attention to, to this space, women's leadership often is, can be said, a second tier priority. In, in democracy transitions. And I can't think of a single democracy promotion organization that has a woman CEO. What would you, what would a truly feminist approach to democracy promotion look like to you? I'm glad you asked this question because it's very important to note that in a international landscape of democratic troubles, you know, we're living through a time of just tremendous democratic difficulty in the world. If you look back over the last 25 years and say not, not just a country success story, but a sort of thematic success story, I would point to women's empowerment. Uh, in many parts of the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, parts of Latin America, there have been tremendous gains by women uh, in their socioeconomic role, in their socio-political role. And um, that's not a detail. That's you know a significant part of the population of these countries is getting treated better asserting its rights and having a chance to have a say in, in what happens in the countries. Now, it's only a very small uh, sort of, you know, progress along the road towards what needs to happen over time. But in a landscape of decline, it's important to point to say something good is happening around the world with respect to women. And the anger we see out there, which is severe and well justified, is a sign that they, you know, they're energized, they're empowered, they want more, they need more. Um, and so, 
having a, a democracy support approach that really integrates women, not as just a, a sort of a, a niche topic. You say, oh, I'm doing work here, here, here. And I also do some work on women's leadership. Instead, you have to say in every area that you work, whether it's civic activism, women need to be central to the work, whether it's political parties, integrating women more into parties, whether it's um, parliamentary work, women need to be better trained as parliamentarians and more included as parliamentarians. Local government work, women need to be central. So women's leadership isn't a niche issue. It should be central to the whole menu of democracy assistance. It should be integrated into all parts of it. And again, Canada, like, like some of its friends in Northern Europe, like Sweden, and a few of the other Nordic countries has a lot to offer in this regard because <clears throat> leadership makes a real difference when it comes to women uh, in government. You know, the United States, the percentage of women in the U.S. Congress is lower than the average percent of women in African legislatures. Right. So it's a little hard for the United States to say we're leading on this topic. You know, um, now it doesn't mean they have a lot to contribute in saying we'd like to provide support and such, but those countries that have really shown that they're able to do, you know, to make significant strides in the place of women in politics have a lot to offer in this domain. So a feminist foreign policy isn't a niche issue. It should be central to the democracy agenda. And it's it's a place where Canada could really make a bigger contribution. Right. And and there's a lot of heavy lifting that that I think goes into this. It's it's uh, for, for our listeners. I mean, we, we shouldn't uh, assume that it's just an easy process of saying, Here's a list of candidates, and just just make sure you've got the the the, the gender quota even. There, there's a, often in many cases, in many in many uh, uh, places that are either emerging democracies or even established ones, there are really entrenched systems of exclusion to keep many many women out of mm. of those chambers of power, and and those are also those hard conversations about inclusion and, and exclusion, right? It's it's often oh, the, the the policies are even uh, overtly thought about to create that exclusion, or sometimes they're tacitly there as a result of broader gender stereotypes in the in the society. No question. You should take a look at the work of my colleague Saskia Breckenmacher. Um, she's doing tremendous work on women's political empowerment. She's writing a book. Uh, with a colleague, Catherine Mann, that's really looking at the whole field of women's political empowerment and saying, what have we learned so far and how can we move to generation 2.0 of this work to really do better? And it's 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 really a deep and, um, you know, kind of a profound area in which the democracy community needs to do better. Maybe when democ- uh, Canada does set up that democracy organization, sounds like uh, having a woman as head of it would be a, a nice signal to the rest of the world. Absolutely. And Tom, if I can just um, close on one final question, just to go back to your, your comments on, on Myanmar. Uh, again, I'm sort of bringing my own personal interest into this as someone who's, who's done research there and have written about the, uh, the, the issues with the, the, the genocide against the Rohingya. Uh, one of the things that keeps coming back to me is that when the sort of uh, releasing of power by the military uh, few years back and people coming online, there was really a global celebration around what was going on there, that this was a opening up and, and this is more of a democratic state and there's a lot of hope for, for the country. But now that the coups occurred, uh, it would seem that if you look carefully at it, the deck was always stacked in favor of, of, of the military, that if they wanted to pull the rug out, which they did, they could. And I wonder if that's another element to democracy support and assistance, that if, if, if 
countries are trying to create their their deck, as it were, uh, to to create a new form of governance. That it also requires a lot of hard conversations to make sure that it's not stacked, so that they can crumble like a house of cards. Um, do you have any thoughts about uh, also what's gone on in, in Myanmar during the past uh, few years? Yeah, I'm glad you come back to this, Robert, because it is a it's both a heartrending case and it's a it's actually a crucially important one because of its regional position and its symbolism. Somehow, Myanmar gets under the skin of many people in the world. There's something about the country that attracts a level of attention some ways out of proportion to its population because there's there's something just compelling about it. You know, I went to Myanmar, I remember in 2010 when things were starting to open up and I left and I guess I'm kind of a cautious observer of, of things. And in the midst of the celebratory atmosphere, I wrote an article that said, is this a democratization process or is it a liberalization process? A liberalization being a project by the military to allow the civilians to have a certain amount of formal power in order to take the pressure off the military to gain the international credibility they need and the economic relations they need, but not a democratization process. And I argued that, you know, uh, it's uh, the jury is out until we really see genuine democratization. And unfortunately, that's proven to be the case, as it has in other countries where you have the military woven into the fabric of the state itself in a in a deep way. Think of Pakistan, think of Egypt, places where the modern state of the country was really forged by the military. And so when we say the military needs to go back to the barracks, they've never been in just in the barracks. The state mm-hmm. was built around the military. And so it's rather, could this state be transformed? Could the role of the military be transformed into something it has never been in modern Myanmar? That makes you realize how significant a challenge it is and how we have to keep our hopes somewhat in check. Doesn't mean we should give up. But you're right. The democracy agenda needs to include work on civil-military relations, and it has in many countries. In Indonesia, for example, after 1998, when Indonesia opened up politically, there were extensive efforts to work with the Indonesian military to help them limit their role in the country, work on, for example, budget transparency about the military, make the military budget transparent, get civic activists with the competency to analyze military budgets, do the investigative reporting to find out, discussions between the military and politicians to sort of get to know you and trust building. The Myanmar, the military in Myanmar is just tremendously isolated uh, from the country and they desperately uh, need greater context with the rest of the society. So civil military relations are a vital part of a democracy agenda in Myanmar highlights that uh, to the maximum. Great points, Tom. Thanks so much for that. And for everyone who's uh, who's tuned in to this podcast, if you'd like to learn more from Dr. Tom Carruthers and other expert speakers, uh, please feel free to attend the Parliamentary Center's Global Democracy Dialogue's very first event, which is taking place on May the 12th. That's from 1 p.m. to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can go to Twitter and check out at Parlcent for details on how to attend. And you'll include the link to the Parliamentary Center uh, in this podcast. Tom, thank you so much for, for joining us on GDP. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I really do hope that uh, our listeners uh, are, are able to, to really get into the, to the value and importance of, of democracy support and the ideas that you brought forward today. That's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on board.